For the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. We have these bold, brave, dancing, singing women who have uh, created ritual and liturgy and leadership within their traditions, and yet whose names we do not know, whose stories we don't get to hear, and uh, who oftentimes ultimately end up being sacrificed, be that literally in the case of Jephthah's daughter or their reputation in the case of Lilith. And and for me, that is part of the personal side of why I, I paint these icons, why I write about their stories. Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber is author of six books that address the intersections among religion, the arts, gender, and sexuality. She holds a PhD in art and religion from the Graduate Theological Union. Dr. Yarber has been a clergywoman and professional artist since 1999. Her books include The Gendered Pulpit, Sex, Body, and Desire in Preaching and Worship, Microaggressions in Ministry Confronting the Hidden Violence of Everyday Church, and Embodying the Feminine in the Dances of the World's Religions. Her website is holywomenicons.com, and we're going to spend most of our time talking about the Holy Women Icons Project from Velas, North Carolina, via Skype. Welcome, Dr. Yarber, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, your book, Holy Women Icons. I I really uh, enjoyed that. How did it come to be? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, Around 2009, um, I realized that I was kind of confronted with this overwhelming pantheon of all male saints in almost every religious tradition, and particularly within Christianity, since that's the place in which I find my ordination and my background. Um, And not only was it predominantly male iconography everywhere that I look in male leadership, but tremendously whitewashed as well. So a lot of the the men that we do see uh, in iconography are uh, men that historically would have been men of color, but when we see them uh, painted, they are not. And I think that that is uh, oppressive and, and racist. And I think that there are a whole host of women throughout every wisdom tradition who have done revolutionary, amazing, holy work, but whose stories we often don't hear, even for people who go to seminary, even for people who do PhDs in religion, uh, people who go to church every Sunday or whatever their religious tradition might be. And they end up growing up and never knowing about these revolutionary people like Polly Murray and Sarasvati and Jarena Lee, and the list could go on. So around that time, I kind of took to canvas and decided um, that I could canonize my own list of saints, (laughs) Uh, which is a a good Baptist thing to do in some ways. We don't like people Uh telling us what to do. (laughs) So uh, I painted a a triptych, which is a three-piece work of art of Sophia, which is the Greek feminine embodiment of wisdom. Then a lot of Feminist theologians like Elizabeth Johnson claim that uh, Sophia was like a feminine version of Jesus. And so I I painted her and then realized that um, this could become a life work, that it wasn't just Sophia. And so since then, I've painted close to 60 icons um, that are historical, that stem from mythology, goddess tradition, scripture, literature. And and then I write about them with essays. Um, and, and those were compiled in 2014 in the book, Holy Women Icons. And then earlier this year in a coloring book, uh, Holy Women Icons Contemplative Coloring Book. And, and the project 
kind of continues now where it's um, painting and writing and leading retreats and workshops related to these amazing holy women whose stories we just don't hear about enough. In the book, uh, there are about 35, 33, I think. Uh, But Mm -hmm. on your website, uh, Holy Women Icons, uh, there are more. That's right. That's right. So since the book came out in 2014, I've painted, I would say, at least 20 more. And there were a few in the book that I didn't really write about because they were commissions from individual people. And so I was writing about people that you could find somewhere in a history book, um, not uh, uh, individual friends and colleagues who wanted a commission for um, a birthday or an ordination or a graduation or something like that. Um, but I, I would really say that a lot of the ones that I've painted since the book came out might be some of my favorites. And so I'm hoping, you know, in the future to come back, and I imagine Parsons Porch Publishing would be open to this too, um, to come back and do a second volume or to tweak things a bit and add a lot of the women that I've painted since it came out in 2014. Well, I hope you do. Let's talk a little bit about the paintings themselves. Uh, you call it folk feminist, oh, with a folk feminist twist. Folk art. That's with- right. What is that? Um, Well, I think so much of iconography, as I already said, is uh, predominantly male, oftentimes very whitewashed. And I would also say that, at least in my experience, a lot of it, while inspiring and meaningful for very many people, can also be a bit intimidating. And I remember uh, circumstances where I was in uh, uh, St. Catherine's monastery in on the Sinai Peninsula or when I was in a Russian Orthodox church um, while the American embassy was being bombed, interestingly, um, and looking around at these icons and for me, maybe because it's not my tradition, but uh, they were a little bit brooding, almost a little frightening. Uh, maybe it's because they were all men, I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, there's something about them that wasn't incredibly accessible for someone who isn't trained in iconography, who can't look at it and be able to name a peacock represents faith and hands raised in this way represent this particular meaning or gesture within a faith tradition. So I wanted to kind of dismantle that a bit. And uh, my style in general is pretty folk. Um, and I think that that's a very accessible style. It's one that um, I hope I think isn't quite as elitist as some fine art can be. And then the feminism is is simply the lens through which I look at everything in the world and particularly spirituality and different wisdom traditions. So taking some elements of traditional iconography, but then uh, kind of subverting it and giving it a folk feminist twist. I've noticed that the eyes uh, and all the icons are closed. Is there a significance to that? For sure. So I have joked uh, whenever I lead workshops that that involve actually painting, that uh, one reason is that eyes are difficult to paint, but that, that's not the, the actual, you know, theoretical or theological significance. But I think often in uh, Buddhist iconography, for example, uh, the symbolism of the Buddha's eyes being closed or almost entirely closed is that uh, the Buddha is typically in some kind of a state of enlightenment um, or a state of meditation. And so uh, when I I paint these women, I paint their eyes closed to kind of signify that um, that's the state that they are in. I also think that in some ways, because the heart is so large on the canvas, the heart of each woman, that that's already a very vulnerable place to have each woman. And so I almost felt that painting their eyes open would be a bit voyeuristic for viewers, or at least that's the way it felt to me. So I, I kept them with eyes closed throughout the entire series. 
And uh, the icons are of real historical people, recent people, uh, Mary Daly, for example, the feminist uh, theologian who just passed right. about five or six years ago. Uh, back to biblical characters and Tiamat, uh, the mythical sea monster that uh, slain in the myth by Marduk and whose carcasses split and all that stuff. Are there right. an awful violence against women? I mean, there's, there's a lot there. But are there criteria for becoming a holy woman icon? That's a really great question and something that I've struggled with all along. And and I'm in some ways particularly grateful that you named Mary Daly because I think that naming her is an opportunity for critique of what I've done because I think that sometimes in the case of Mary Daly, she's done revolutionary work um, as, you know, self-proclaimed radical uh, lesbian philosopher. Um, and I remember when I was in college reading The Church and the Second Sex and Beyond Gone the Father and feeling as though... Uh, it gave me permission to be angry about a tradition that withheld things from women and particularly from queer women. But the more I've researched and learned about Mary Daly, the more I've realized that uh, she was not without fault, certainly, um, that she often ignored the voices of women of color. She ignored uh, the voices of trans women. And so I think that as I've grown in this project, some of my criteria has shifted and changed. And it's it's possible that today... If I had just started the project, I might not include Mary Daly because of those things. And so it's a, a struggle specifically for me as a white cisgender woman that sometimes I've been clouded by my own privileges. And I think that the case of painting Mary Daly is an example. And and so that's a sideways answer <laughs> of saying that I don't have a specific criteria, that there are some women uh, in the canon that I've painted that have surprised me because someone has requested them as a commission. And I've thought, well, I don't think I would normally uh, want to paint her, but tell me why. And because I trust that person, I let them unpeel that story. And sometimes that helps me see where I've had my own biases against a woman historically. But um, basically trying to lift up uh, revolutionary women who've done amazing revolutionary things, uh, be it in mythology and history, and and often ones whose stories we never ever hear. So those are some of the criteria that they need to be empowering. Not all of them necessarily would have identified as feminist, and I think that's okay. Well, you know, one of them uh, that I have a connection with you, with your tradition, I grew up Southern Baptist, and I remember okay. always taking the Lottie Moon offering to go, and mm -hmm. Lottie Moon went over and converted the heathen Chinese. And that was one of the people who uh, someone requested of you, and, and you wrestled with uh, the Lottie Moon uh, character and, and found something uh, liberating within her. That's right. I'm I'm really glad you knew that. And uh, because I am ordained in the Baptist tradition, it wasn't where I was raised, but the very first church I ever served when I was, you know, 18 years old and didn't really know that there was a diversity among Baptists was a Southern Baptist church. And I remember that Lottie Moon offering. And I remember uh, going through this uh, controversy specifically about women's ordination and my church splitting over that and me leaving and then being ordained and thinking, why would I ever want to include a Southern Baptist in the Holy Women Icons Project. And then here was this colleague, someone who went to seminary with me, who um, is is herself, um, you know, ordained in the Baptist tradition, is very prophetic, identifies as feminist, and has a daughter who she names Lottie because of this connection to Lottie Moon and, and ended up sharing with me some of the really powerful things that she did that I think I 
completely glossed over the, the time period in which she lived and how she allowed the time that she spent in China uh, to change her and to change her perspective of Chinese people because she went with um, an abhorrible view <laughs> of uh, really anyone who was different or non-white um, and then allowed those experiences to change her. And I think that that was a, a lesson for me in, um, in the voices and the perspectives that I've ignored because I just lump them together and forget about their context. If you are just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Reverend Dr. Angela uh, Yarber. Uh, she is uh, uh, an author and a feminist and a preacher. And you, um, one of the characters in, in Holy Women Icons, is Lilith. Uh, Lilith uh, connected to the Adam and Eve story um, right. in, some, uh, in an apocryphal way, I guess. I don't know how we would—tell me about Lilith, first of all, and then I want to ask a question about her. Sure. Um, so Lilith, uh, we don't—the Midrash, so in the Jewish tradition, Midrash is essentially climbing into a text and— filling in all of the empty spaces in the mm. canon. And so the Lilith Midrash, uh, and I use Judith Plaskow, she's a feminist Jewish scholar, um, I use her Midrash, is essentially that uh, Lilith and Adam were created first, and Lilith didn't want to be subservient to Adam, so she left. And then the story goes that God created Eve. And in in Judith Plaskow's Midrash, uh, Lilith comes back, not into the garden, but kind of on the outside of the garden's walls, and develops this relationship with Eve, where she tries to offer liberation to her. And interestingly, throughout um, the Talmudic periods and rabbinical periods and throughout kind of the history of Judaism, Lilith uh, becomes more and more demonized um, and is uh, described as, you know, becoming an evil demon who comes back and steals the souls of children and kills men and tries to seduce them. Um, and, and Plaskow claims that uh, that happens because the more we see women having access to power throughout history, the more uh, those who are already in power want to uh, push that down as much as possible. And so uh, by demonizing Lilith, then they can demonize women's liberation all around. And, and we've seen that kind of in contemporary ways. I remember as a teenager going to the Lilith Fair concerts, um, which is you know, all women, often feminist uh, concerts from Sarah McLaughlin, the Indigo Girls and those, uh, but claiming Lilith as this powerful figure. And so I painted her around the time that I was wrestling leaving the church that I was serving and uh, doing so was a very liberatory act for me. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about as well, because in, in the uh, book, as you're describing Lilith, you tell your own story that you were a pastor for preaching and worship at a Baptist church, and uh, you became, with your co-pastor, the uh, first or only uh, in the country to out lesbians as head pastors, which sounds really remarkable. I mean, this isn't your typical King James Baptist free will church. For sure, not at all. <laughs> so it's a great liberal church, sounds like a wonderful spot, and yet you found uh, it within that a lot of microaggression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I want to be clear about saying that this particular church that I served, um, it's a community filled with really, really fabulous people who care mm -hmm. about the work of justice very deeply. And many of those people I'm still in touch with and still love very much. But I think that like many highly educated, progressive, predominantly white communities, that this church, like many others, felt that it had done the works of justice, was doing the works of justice, and that 
because of that, they were somehow absolved from doing anything that could be oppressive to anyone, uh, even though the community was you know, over 95% white, uh, you know, at, at one point it was, you know, something like 70% had advanced degrees. Um, and so it was a community that prided itself on being open and affirming. And yet I think in calling me and then having two out lesbians as head pastors and also two women who um, we embody our sexuality and our gender quite differently, um, that when you look at us, we um, look quite opposite in our expression of our gender identity. I'm um, not high femme by any means, but pretty femme. And my co-pastor um, doesn't really express her gender identity in that way at all. And so I think that for some people, even though they wanted very much to be an open and affirming and maybe even proud place, that seeing us every Sunday in front of them did something maybe even subconsciously, that caused quite a few people to act out in really hurtful and oppressive ways, not just toward me and toward my co-pastor, but toward a lot of LGBTQ people in the congregation. And as I was there over that two and a half years, we had um, over 60 new people join, and most of them were young, queer people, um, many who were from farther out in the country who hadn't had the privilege of higher education. And so there were class and education differences. There were some race differences. Um, and I think that for many progressive white people that we think in theory that we want to be good and open-minded, but then when it's when it confronts us and it changes the way we've done things, then it, it causes some problems. And so um, in that setting, I was treated in some very microaggressively sexist and heterosexist ways. And um, for about six months, I kept bringing this up with the leadership, the deacons, the personnel committee, and, and nothing really changed. And it got to the point where I decided that this was causing too much harm for me, um, emotionally, physically, even psychologically and spiritually, and that I wouldn't be setting a good example uh, for myself or for any other women or queer folks um, to stay in that position. Angela Yarber, my guest, uh, Holy Women Icons, uh, is uh, her book and a website, also a book, Microaggressions in Ministry, uh, Confronting the Hidden Violence of Everyday Church. And uh, as I read that book, um, I kept thinking, well, yeah, I, I often want to think myself, yeah, I'm, I'm a liberal guy. But really, I'm committing microaggressions all the time because part of that I don't even know. Um, it's it's an aspect of being um, uh, white male, heterosexual, and those kinds of things. And it's the not recognizing, in some respects, some of those microaggressions. Sometimes we are just really obviously bad, but much of the time it's just embedded within us. And and you talk about how, to, how, how we can be aware and, and confront those. Sure. I think that it's really hard. Anytime I give talks about microaggressions in ministry and, and my colleague Cody Sanders, who wrote the book with me, I think would agree um, that I wish that we could just create some kind of a litmus test or a check, a checklist where every day you just check it off and then you don't do anything that's microaggressively racist or sexist or heterosexist to anybody. Um, but that's unfortunately an impossible thing to do. And so even as the author of that book, I am still guilty of perpetrating microaggressions toward others. So um, just to be clear uh, with folks who've never heard the term, microaggressions developed out of social psychology um, and have really expanded with the work of Columbia's Daryl Wing Sue. Um, 
and there are everyday slights, invalidations, insults that are underhanded um, that we often don't realize that are directed at marginalized and oppressed groups. And so we would like to think, at least up until maybe about a year ago, that in our country, that when someone is blatantly racist, sexist, or homophobic, that good, thoughtful people would stand up and say, hey, we don't do that. That's not the way that we treat people. Um, what has happened in the past year is a conversation perhaps for another time because we do allow that to happen now. But um, in the face of people wanting to think that we are politically correct or post-racial, which I would say are that's a complete myth, um, instead of doing blatantly racist, sexist, heterosexist, ableist things, we do these underhanded slights um, that are often very unintentional, very ambiguous, and leave the person being microaggressed wondering, hey, what just happened here? I thought that person was my ally. I thought that person was my friend. I thought I was safe in this space. But instead, they leave wondering, did she really mean that? Did did he just say what I thought he said? Surely I'm not hearing something correctly, or or perhaps I'm being too sensitive. And so in those ways, uh, Daryl Wing Sue and others have claimed that the psychological damage is actually more difficult to deal with than the blatant forms of discrimination. Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber is my guest on Progressive Spirit. I want to talk about a horrible story in the Bible. You make an icon for Jephthah's daughter. And this is the story of the um, soldier, Jephthah, who comes back from war, and he's so uh, excited that uh, he makes a vow to God that uh, he'll sacrifice the first person that comes out of his house um, in thanks for his great victory. And it's his daughter who comes out dancing. And, and then rather than just, you know, say, well, gosh, I'm just kidding, uh, he actually does it. Um, Talk about this story and uh, how this connects with your own experience and your work with the Holy Women Icons Project. Sure. And that's really, it was, she wasn't the first icon that I painted, but she was within the first 10. And I kind of oftentimes when I speak about the Holy Women Icons Projects, when I'm doing guest lectures or sermons or things like that related to it, I often open with the story of me at, uh, you know, three in the morning, uh, hiking up. Mount Sinai to see the sunrise. And then finally, after all this travel, being permitted into the monastery with a male priest as my guide, of course, um, to go into it. And and my whole reason for going in was to see this icon of Jephthah's daughter. It's the oldest icon of Jephthah's daughter. So I, I go into this sacred space and I'm confronted by just Everywhere I look were icons, uh, incense, golden chandeliers. It was a sensory overload. And I walk up to the altar, and I know what to expect um, because I'd read about it. I know that centered on the altar is a crucifix, which is pretty standard in a lot of Orthodox traditions. Um, and that on the right side is an icon depicting the binding of Isaac, which is the story where Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, but he doesn't because a ram appears. And so his son is spared, which is fitting because his name is Child of Promise. And then on the left side of this altar is a depiction, the oldest depiction of Jephthah's daughter, who, as you said, it's the story of Jephthah as a warrior who makes this vow. Um, if I win this battle, whoever exits the doors of my house, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. And even though it was customary during that time for women, anytime men return from battle to exit the doors of their home with singing and dancing, uh, he still makes that vow. And so, of course, who exits the doors of his home first? 
left his daughter, who is nameless in the text, um, and who is referred to as a virgin three times, which indicates that it's uh, Jephthah's only property because women were property at the time, and that uh, sacrificing her would for him be a tremendous loss of assets. That's kind of how it's seen. And so uh, she does speak in the text and says, grant me this, let me go off to the mountains to bewail my virginity with my sisters and I, uh, meaning her friends. So she does that and comes back and then the text says he did to her according to the vow he had made. And there was something to me about seeing, you know, looking at this male figure, Jesus, who's crucified, but we know what awaits him in that tradition. He gets to be resurrected. And then we see Isaac, the child of promise, who's spared. And then to the left, we see Jephthah's daughter, whose name we do not know, and who is slaughtered. And I think that is very indicative of the history of a whole host of spiritual traditions, that we have these bold, brave, dancing, singing women who have uh, created ritual and liturgy and leadership within their traditions, and yet whose names we do not know, whose stories we don't get to hear, and uh, who oftentimes ultimately end up being sacrificed, be that literally in the case of Jephthah's daughter or their reputation in the case of Lilith. And and for me, that is part of the personal side of why I, I paint these icons, why I write about their stories, so that uh, women who don't think that they can uh, have access to ritual leadership or leadership in different wisdom traditions can look and see, no, there are women who have done this. The whole notion, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, To give women and queer women and women of color in particular an opportunity to look and see other women who look like them, who've lived like them, who love like them, canonized in some way, even if it's just by my paintbrush and called holy, then I think in doing that, they might be able to turn around and look in the mirror and see themselves as holy too. And in our society, I think that that is a revolutionary act. And that's really kind of the purpose of your work for Holy Women Icons, isn't it? That is. That is to um, empower women by telling the revolutionary stories of holy women through art, through writing, and through special events, for sure. And your website is, again? It is holywomenicons.com. Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. Uh, Thank you so much for this work and for being with me today. Thank you, and thank you for being um, a great ally who stands for justice, too. It's been great talking with you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit at the intersection of spirituality and social justice. Progressive Spirit is heard on radio stations across the country as well as podcasts, and you can find podcasts at progressivespirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network and KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schuck. Be well.